please pronounce your name correctly for me. My name is Silja Leifstotter. And you do many things. You are both an artist and a curator. And then even within those, it seems like you're very many different things. So give me a lay of the land. What are all the different roles you have in the arts industry right now? Yeah, I have many hats and I do enjoy that, although it can be a bit confusing for myself and others at some times. My main job, my 100% main job is to be a curator at what in Norwegian is called Norsk Billedhoggeforening, which translates to the Norwegian Sculptors Society. So that is one thing that I spend Mondays to Fridays on. But then I'm also the chair in the Norwegian Curators Association. And then I started 11 years ago when I moved back to Norway in Oslo. I started what is now known as the Oslo Art Guide which is a free guide to the contemporary art scene in Oslo. And along with that, we also arrange the Oslo Art Weekend in September each year. Yeah, I used to run a an online arts guide kind of thing in a small town I, I lived in in the United States. And that's difficult to do. And people don't understand how difficult it is to do. That is true. It's been a journey. <laughs> Well, it's I, I, the thing that I was surprised by was how creative people, so like in the case of yours, it seems to be like a gallery guide, an event guide, performance guide, that kind of thing. Those people who have these events and, 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 and exhibitions and stuff like that, they don't often put a lot of effort into it. And, and they expect the other side. They expect you sort of as the press person or the person who does the guide thing. You're supposed to do all the work for them. When in reality, like you're probably doing it for little to no money. And so really you're expecting them to do all of that work. And they and so there's this disconnect between institutions, galleries, and whoever else is putting on events that about what they expect the people on the other side to do for them. That is correct. <laughs> and I think that at, from an audience perspective, I think that most people think that the Oslo Art Guide is like large companies <laughs> run by lots of people having a factory and that we are there and online and working on it all the time but as you say that is not obviously the deal but we started out quite small and now there is really lovely team so i actually don't do that much myself anymore but i did in the beginning for the first two years we were four people starting it and for the first two years i had a part-time job at the photographer's gallery so i had some time so i actually we didn't have a proper website, so I actually put in all the information myself physically. So I collected the information, I typed it in. Obviously, the really bad thing with that is that when you do errors, you're the only one to blame because you're the one that misspelled the artist's name or, you know, those certain things. You, you'll you be the one hold responsible for every mistake that is in print. And that was unbearable. And so and we changed that few years we got website where there's an admin backlog so each institutions obviously have their own backside to the web page and a password and they have as you say the responsibility to update this every time there's changes in dates or group exhibitions with artists that are in and out and all of this and obviously that comes into print at four times per year 
And so we and I and the company um, look bad, obviously, when the institutions do not update it. It sort of comes back at us, which is also not the best feeling. So we try to remind them all the time. We try to be a pain in the ass, basically, with emails and spam and try to remind them all the time. But uh, you do feel ignored sometimes. But then it's also really rewarding on the other hand. So I've, yeah, I guess since I've been doing it for 12 years, it must be mostly rewarding and less of a pain in the ass. Or you just handed all the pain in the ass work off to your employees. Yeah, at least there's a nice team so we can share the pain in the ass and we can have someone to to talk to when we get pissed off or something that helps. So I didn't even know that. So it's not just a website, but you actually do printed versions of it as well. We do. I love printed matter. So we've every year we have a discussion. We would save a lot of money to be only website, obviously. But for me, it's this big thing about everything that is online. You can have the best web shop. You can have the best website, but you still need to know about it. So as the audience, you cannot be completely passive because you need to go either search for it and find it. Or you need to know what it is you're looking for and Google it and find it. So it demands something of you still. And I love still having the printed matter because that is something that you pick up and you find it on your way and it is in your hands and you don't have to do something about it. So the whole idea, obviously, of the Oslo Art Guide is to tell people that don't already know (laughs) what exists and what is on about it. So to me, it becomes really important that it is exactly also a printed matter that you see, even though you weren't looking for it. And now how do you run this? Like, so it's funding. Is this state funded, government funded, privately funded? How do you run it? Yeah. So it's the Arts Council that from the very beginning gave us project support. So for the first, I think, seven years, we had to apply every year and we didn't know if we would get it, like, you know, be able to do it the next year or just a few months from that time. So, but for the last five years or so, we've been able to get first two years at the time and now three years at the time, which gives us, helps a lot. So now I know that I have a little project support. So that actually covers print run costs, but the cost for the employees and the design and the website is completely funded by ads. And also the institutions and the galleries and museums has to pay a little fee every quarter to be part of it. So that's sort of it. Yeah, I tried that structure with mine. and It, 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 it was a small town and it failed miserably because everybody was like, well, why do we have to pay for this? Yeah, <laughs> I know. But it was a fun way to discover also the Oslo scene because when I moved to Oslo, I didn't know anyone. And so this was a very efficient way to get to know institutions and the people behind it and their personalities and their opinions and all of this but we do have some of this we set for a flat structure because we thought first that the museums and the large institutions should pay more but then we discovered that that means that I have to be the boss of deciding who's big and who's small in a sense and I didn't want to sort of like then the people behind it have to like define all of these like what's medium what's small what's large depending on how much you should pay. And that feels like a lot to have in your hands. And so the only thing we have is that the artist-run spaces, which there's a lot of in Oslo, 
and they're a really important part of the art scene. They have a deal that they get to be in it for free for three years. And if they still exist after three years, they have to start to pay the same as everyone else. But obviously the mandate of an artist run space is sometimes to just be a pop-up space for a year and then no longer be there. So that's kind of like a good deal. But some of them survives and becomes established places after quite a while. Yeah, I love it. I hated that I had to quit mine, but it was I had a I had a legal problem with a coworker that was there, a partner didn't go well. But that you know, that's my problem. <laughs> I learned not to do partnerships. No. We are now two people. We were four that started it, but we're two people left. So it's me and Eric Sten, which is actually also the director at where I work. So he's my boss from Monday to Friday, and I'm his boss when it's Tesla Art Guide. It's weird, but it works. If it works for you, that sounds great. So, I mean, but basically it's sort of like what I see, like when I go to some other places, I'm thinking like Berlin and other places, like they have the generally like the art map or something like that. So it's basically a more robust and locally produced version of that. Yeah, because I lived a few years in, I started in Glasgow, and after that I moved to Berlin. In both places, they had some sort of guide to the visual art scene. And then when I moved to Oslo, I was, as I said, I didn't know anyone and I wanted to get to know things, but I was really surprised that there wasn't any information on that at all. There was one kind of a version, but that was like complete catalog of absolutely everything. So it didn't actually work as a guide in the sense that it guides you to what you want to see, and especially not for the contemporary art scene. And it was in Norwegian. And nothing in English. And so that's when I thought like, okay, if you're missing something, you might as well just make it yourself. Okay. I've always wondered this when it comes to those kinds of things, because like you have your standard map, like that so just says, these are all the locations and these are all the events in those locations. But every now and then you have like little, like, these are the special ones. Like here's a one we're putting at the top of the page or putting a bigger, whatever. How is that for you? Is that an advertising paid thing or is that a curatorial sort of editorial choices? So that is also a part of the flat structures. Like we decided in the beginning and we stuck to it that in the sense, we don't hide the advertisement in that sense. So everyone pays the same and get equal amount of space and science. Like it's the title, it's the dates, it's the artist names, etc. But then you can pay to sort of support us, but also to make yourself more visible, to have an ad on the back, on the very end sites, pages of the physical guides and on the website. So usually that is the main institutions like Panley Museum and the larger institutions. They sponsor us in the sense then with advertising in the back of the guide, but it's very obvious that that is an ad and the rest of the information is really equal um, and not hidden. Okay. I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm just wondering. No, I know. But I hate that when you have to, and it's also in magazines and newspapers, I, that type of advertising when you're wondering how much this costs or if it costs something or if they, yeah, it's quite annoying. It is. Yeah. Okay. I forgot to ask you about your sort of how you became. So I often like to know about how people sort of got to their careers. So were your parents creative? Did you have some great schooling? Like what led you down the path of sort of being interested in the creative industries? Yeah, and that's a good question. Well, I come from, I'm born in Iceland, hence my surname, which sounds Leifstotir. So my 
dad's name is Leif and I'm his daughter, obviously. And I was born in Iceland, but we moved to Norway and to a small city called Buda, which is up north in Norway. So it's above the polar circle. It's usually where tourists come to go further up north to Lofoten, this archipelago that's quite famous for the tourism. So Buda is where you have to go past in order to either take the boat or the plane to Lofoten. So it's like you really have to go through Buda kind of. So I grew up there. My dad is from Buda. And we didn't really have any big museums or institutions. There was nothing there, really. There was some touring at school. You would have like these touring theaters and that came once in a while and popped up and then they disappeared again. But that was kind of it. But my mom, thankfully, and dad sent me to some type of, you know, hobby drawings when I was a child. So I was very much sort of exposed to these type of things, like after school things and my dad was very much into music and being part of a jazz club for 40 years in Buda and probably has the biggest record collection in Buda I think of LPs and so that was kind of my influence into culture but there wasn't any sort of visual arts institutions or anything like that and I was quite bored at school and so we have this thing called Folkehuskola which is this year of a break you can choose to do, sort of a break before you go figure out what else you want to do in your life. And you can study everything from mountain climbing to jazz to drawing and everything. And also some like really, some of them are more like just having fun for a year. And you live, so it's like boarding school. So you live there and you eat there and you have roommates. And so I did that and I went to photography. And so that was where my love affair sort of started because they had a tiny dark room and I was the only one using the dark room so I had it for myself it was mainly me just as a quick question that year what age get range is that year because I don't know your schooling system yeah sorry so that's when you're done with I guess is it high school or so before you start college in between so 17 18 years old yeah exactly so before you start uh, college kind of yeah, we call those gap years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I went to a dark room and I fell in love with it. And I spent a year there just being in the dark room and doing an analog photography. And I made my portfolio and I went to this place called Fata Morgana, which is this private photography school in Copenhagen. That's really special. It's really something, that podcast in itself. So I'm not going to do that story. But then that took me along to my next portfolio, which got me into the fine art photography department. <laughs> okay, wait, wait. Okay, slow down. You cannot tease something like that and then just be like, nope, we're not going to talk about that. Give me a little story there. It, it, you, you said Fata Morgana, right? Yeah, exactly. Fata Morgana. So you know what it is, the word? Uh, no. I mean, I can. Morgana it, to me is a mythological character. Mor, Morgana is the like Merlin and Morgana and all that stuff. I think. Yeah, exactly. I'll try to explain it. So it's this term you use for when you see a vision. If I remember this correctly, now this is my vague memory from then. But when you're in a desert and you start to see something that is not really there, a, a uh, mirage. 
yeah and so you see this sort of vision that's not really there i think that is it i might remember incorrectly but the school is called fatima ghana it's run by it was run by this one person the main guy a danish guy and he had this system which was every second week it was him teaching and then every second week she would have guest teachers from all over the world amazing guest teachers and then he would not be there so when the guest teacher came his name was Morten Bo, but when the guest teachers came he could not sort of as I remember it I don't think he sort of handled to be like playing the second violin so it would either be him being the main star the one week and then he disappeared and then it was the guest teachers and they were really really great and they were from all sides of photography so it could be journalism it could be documentary it could be portraits so you would get like all sides and then you would get a task on monday and you would have to solve it by friday and present it so it's really sort of and it could be quite harsh task like i lived one of the first tasks was death and so i slept over at <laughs> more like at the morgue yeah so I lived and I like slept on a mattress with a sleeping bag for three nights at the morgue in order to like photograph death. And that was like, I was really young and that was one of my first tasks, you know, so it's quite. Okay. Wait, wait, I'm sorry. The morgue allowed you to just sleep over? Yeah. Small town, right? In Copenhagen. I don't know. No, that's not a small thing. I'm surprised that they let you yeah. sleep over at the morgue. That just seems very, yeah, yeah, very, uh, um, yeah. I don't think they'd let you do that anymore. Let's go with that. No, <laughs> let no. Let's say it like that. I don't think so either. And I think my mom and dad were a bit terrified of all the quite confrontational, like confrontational task that we got. But it was these big questions in life, and then you had to sort of present them and you were supposed to get like really close up on the different tasks that you did so it was quite intense and I learned a lot so yeah and the guest teachers were really really amazing most of them and so yeah that was kind of like memory for life and then that took me into Glasgow School of Arts where I studied fine art photography there and um that was also because I didn't want to go in Norway at that time. The art schools in Norway didn't have a dark room for color. And I really wanted to learn both black and white, but also be in the dark room for color development. And there was no choice in Norway for that at the time. So that was why I went to Glasgow School of Art where this Thomas Joshua Cooper, which is this American photographer, black and white nature, photographer was set up a long long time ago the fine art and photography department in Glasgow I'm also a photographer do you really I know oh you actually researched me shit all right but <laughs> the you like the color darkroom I'll give you my position I didn't like it at all uh, I really love a black and white darkroom because of the the red light, the safe light that was in there. It, you, So I felt like there was a little bit more physical manipulations I could do because I could see what I was doing. I could build things like, you know, there was a little bit more interactivity in it. When it whereas in the color dark room, it's completely pitch black and you're just really hoping you got it right on the first try. And I didn't enjoy that as much. No, but I did like the surprises somehow, or I liked the, I kind of liked also the, the being in the dark part, the whole sort of, even though it's really frustrating, I also really enjoyed it. But I do have to say that it's, of course, 
is easier and in a way better to be in the black and white and you can listen to your music and have your beanbox and you can sort of it's yeah it's a different thing <laughs> yeah i mean we had the luck where at my, at my schools we had machines so like we didn't have to do tray developing in, in, of the color chemicals we, we just fed it into a machine it came out the other side all dry and done so that that was very luxurious to me mm, nice yeah, yeah I, i'm still paying off my student loans I am too, because uh, Norway is not a member of the EU. Really? And so, no. And so I paid the same to go to Glasgow School of Art as you would if you came from the United States. So I had super high tuition fees and I'm still paying off on them. That's interesting because I assumed for some reason that they, that because I've met, I've talked to a lot of people who, from Iceland and Norway that went to Glasgow. It seems like Glasgow is like the place that people from Iceland and Norway went for their art education, at least at a certain time period, I guess. And I just assumed that there was some sort of, uh, I don't know, government support for that, just like there's government support for so much else. Well, the, there is, like in Norway, you get these fees, Lånekassen, but if you were from Denmark, because it was part of the EU, you would have a completely different fee, basically. So tuition fee from Glasgow School of Art would be directed to the countries outside of EU, but not the countries that was part of the EU had a different rate. So it was a little bit annoying to be in class with, in that sense, the Swedish and the Danish people that I knew was there almost for free. And I had like super high costs. Oh, my wife just literally like two days ago finished her master's program that was completely free. Mm -hmm. Completely free. Like the whole thing. That's amazing. She, she's she's Czech and we're in the Czech Republic. So she went to a school, government school, and everything's completely free for citizens. That is amazing. Yeah, it annoys the hell out of me. I mean, I'm 20, 20 years out of school and I'm still paying off my student loans. Yeah. And my school even closed, by the way. Like, so my <laughs> the school I went to, who I'm supposedly like paying my student loan on, the school is closed but I still have to pay the loan back. And I'm just like, but the school is closed. Who's getting this money? That's a good question. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Quick question. Your father, you said your father did jazz. Um, I, I always think that people, are either, they either fall in love with the things their parents do or they sort of rebel against it. So do you like jazz or not? I married a jazz musician. He plays the double bass. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you like jazz. I like death. Okay, great. That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> Just wondering. Because my wife and I go back and forth. I love jazz. My wife hates jazz. Just period. There. Yeah. I know the thing. I think it grows on you, though. I still can't, like, really, you know, I just, when people say I hate jazz, I'm like, ah, don't know if you still really, I think there's, you know, something to work on there. I can't believe you just sort of, like, yeah, my interest in it came from, I had a roommate in college, Leonard, who was a saxophone player. And so listening to him and, and watching him study and, and you know, sort of studying with him, sort of listening to what he's learning and stuff gave me a much greater appreciation for it at that point. Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, it's the same. Like, I hate art. It's like, you know, it's a big thing to say. And I'm sure there's some type of art you might enjoy out there. Oh, there, but there is lots of art that we all hate out there, so it's fine. I mean, True. <laughs> almost everything in IKEA, I, I just can't stand. Like, I mean, I love IKEA as a company, 
but I've already railed on Ikea a lot in this podcast, so there'll never be a sponsor. Okay. But, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I love it as a store for basic stuff, but not for decorative stuff. It's just tacky kitsch. Like, I can't stand it. But some artists did design that, and they got paid for it, I hope. So, there's, you know, good for them. Good for them. I should try and find that person as a guest. I want somebody that- <laughs> who designs artwork that's sold in Ikea as a guest. That is a good podcast. I'm going to listen to that one. That will be sure. fascinating to hear why they do that <laughs> and, <laughs> and how that process goes. I'm sure it's different in every country. They do have some of these different collaborative ones that are more local ones. Yeah. I actually really love those. I think Ikea, in many ways, a lot of their collaborations, they did some, like, maybe about three years ago, I think, they did a bunch of, like, artist collaboration things where that were really quite stunning, but they all, like, sold out immediately, and I was able to get none of them. So, great. Thanks. Of course, they try to mimic the whole art scene in that sense. It's the smart move. Indeed. All right. So, getting back okay. to the art scene. So, yeah. you finished at Glasgow. <laughs> yes. And moving forward. And then I moved to Berlin. Like you sort of, it seemed like everyone was either like it was either moving to London or it was moving to Berlin somehow. And so, without any better reasons for that, I moved to Berlin. I got a studio, as you do when you're educated as an artist. And then I realized that it was really, really lonely, super lonely, because art school is like probably one of the most social educations you can go to I, I mean you share a tiny studio with at least three people you're together with someone all the time there's all of these like it's just super social and the contrast of going from that and into a tiny studio space completely by yourself in Berlin that was hard leaving school is always very difficult like people Young people don't understand how amazing that experience is until they've lost it. Exactly. And if I were to do it again, I would probably just sort of like think that maybe just stay in the city where you studied for a little bit longer. So you don't sort of do that transition so abruptly. So you can keep some of the contacts. You can still have the conversations with some of your peers, you know, but to just completely disappear into a city that's enormous where you don't know anyone you lose absolutely everything at once. Agreed. That was not the best idea I've had. I made the same mistake with, I, I graduated, I have three degrees. And the moment I graduated from each of my schools, I left the city immediately. And yeah. <laughs> it was, it was to my, it was the, probably the worst foundational thing that mistake that I made in my career because I cut all those ties and lost all those relationships and all this kind of stuff and continually have had to start over and meet new people, make new connections continually throughout my career. But like the idea of staying somewhere, at least as just like a home base, I mean, you don't necessarily have to like be there all the time, but maybe you're there six months, you're somewhere else, six months, but like you have a home base of that tribe and that community that you build from either graduate or undergraduate school. That is something that I did wrong in my career for sure yeah so that is to your listeners if you're at that phase in your life <laughs> that is something stay. to think about 
stay at least. Yeah, not, at least for a couple of years just so like because like if you're if you're in school you've got your connections and your tribe and your group of people and and they will start to grow and move away also so like let it happen a bit more organically you know so like as people get new jobs and new careers and move away families whatever kind of reason then you can start go sort of going away but like do not make the same mistake i made and seemingly that you made which is like as soon as you graduate leave that city because those connections are probably the most important thing you could have had that you just gave up definitely for sure they're really really valuable you just don't see it when you're in it and then you leave it so yeah so that was really lonely and then i realized I got into this little group of people that were running something called the Grimm Museum, which was a small artist-run space in Berlin. And I got to curate a few group exhibitions. And I realized that even though I never tried that before, it was very social. Like you do have to sort of, you hang out with all the artists, you have all the good conversations about artworks, how they should be in dialogue, not in dialogue how they should be mounted. And it's a really creative process, at least with group exhibitions, because you're sort of connecting the dots and you're telling a story. So there's some, like a lot of creativity behind it for me. And so I realized that when I did all of these exhibitions, I didn't miss my own practice. And so that sort of slowly just became the thing. So rather than working on my own, like I did some photography, of course, I didn't stop completely to take pictures. But it sort of slowly took more and more space in my life and to sort of produce and to curate. And it was just as much fun. And then that was kind of it. And then after three years in Berlin, I got really, really broke and I had to start to pay down my loan, which I could have on pause for a certain amount of time. But then after X amount of years, I needed to start to pay it back on my loan. And that was only doable in Norway because what I earned as a bartender and whatnot in Berlin could not cover the costs of everything. So I moved back and I started to work as a producer at the photographer's gallery or a gallery coordinator, I think it was called. And I did that for seven years at the photographer's gallery. Okay. I'm always fascinated. So you do curatorial works. I'm, I love curators and I wish that they would like me back but they don't seem to but it's fine <laughs> but how do you, you find new artists these days like because i mean the world is literally your oyster with social media websites all this kind of stuff like how do you find how do you weed through all of that and find quality work and quality artists yeah that is a good question i yeah, just to sort of finish up the story so you get the whole part. So after my, while I was working at the photographer's gallery, I did my MA in, I realized that I sort of, I have to just quit calling myself an artist because at a certain point, after not doing my own practice for so many years, I just had to realize that that was like not anything I was comfortable calling myself anymore. And I did an MA in curatorial practice in Bergen. So I sort of, that was like a decision that was kind of made <laughs> and i think that for me when i i really enjoy uh, curating especially group exhibitions i think because i do have this like hybrid of having the history of being an artist and thinking like that 
but then I also now have this background as a curator. So I mix them in a bit. And I think for me, I start with the story I want to tell. And so I have something that I want to tell. And then I find the artists that fits into that story. So that's usually the order that I do things in. So once you have the story, you have something to latch onto. So that's where the research starts. And so you start just into this like complete interweb of Googling and going far deep as you can go. And you find artists that you think works with something that would make sense into the story that you're making. All right. I'll use myself an example on this one. So like I do mostly figurative work, though I have some other works, but let's say primarily figurative works. If I don't put like figurative or like, do you do as a curator, do you do like Google searches for like figurative work or what, like what, what kind of things do you even look for using the internet? Because basically, quite honestly, somebody recently hacked my website. So I'm going to have to rebuild my website. So I'm trying to figure out like, how do I rebuild my website? Put the, put the right keywords in to make it so that people can find this shit. Cause it's really difficult. I mean, I, it's, I mean, because the part of it is just like, A, there's that, but B, there's also languages too. Because of course, like I'm American, I do it in English, but of course, like curators in Germany are going to look for the word figurative in German, you know? So like, if I want to be exhibiting in Germany, I should be including these German translations or should I? Does Google do that for us? I don't fucking know. No, it doesn't, I think. And I think you have to use people that's my the best tool is to realize like your own weaknesses like i you know what your own strengths are and what your own where you're like i for example after working 7 years at the photographers gallery i'm pretty strong when it comes to the nordic photography contemporary photog- after those 7 years but i don't if i were to suddenly realize that i need something outside of that bubble i would have to reach a hand out to people that i know know these things i wouldn't use google for that i would basically use networks and i would not necessarily people that i already know but to email institutions in the places that you think might be all of these things you just have to start somewhere and then they might give you a name of someone and then that person might give you a name of someone and then you start to web this whole web and so I love it. So basically you're telling me I should not put a huge amount of effort into my website, put the images up, put a little blur, but like, don't concern myself too much about it because it's going to be somebody that's going to recommend somebody to look at my website, not Google. That's going to draw people to it. Or a combination of those. I just wouldn't use Google completely. That would be, no, that feels really weird for me. Um, Yeah, it would be weird. Yeah. No, I would just sort of, but I do, and these days, some people only have Instagram. I'm, I know you talked about this a little bit in your podcast before. But of course, as long as you have something, I think that's the most important thing. It's a little bit frustrating when you have this name and you try to find something visual to use because you heard or name dropped or someone and then you can't find any traces anywhere. So yes, it is important to have something out there. But I wouldn't spend too much time trying to like trick the algorithms or... I, my, my entire life is based around trying to trick the algorithms. That's, that's like my, my the bane of my fucking existence <laughs> is that goddamn algorithm. Cause like, 
Oh, I I love a good system and I love the knowledge and the ability to game the system, <laughs> but that's one I cannot figure out. Yeah. Yeah. Drives me nuts. Okay. Wait, but you just said something that made me wonder as a curator. So this is, you know, you, if you saw an artist who had a website and another artist of exactly similar quality of work that only had an Instagram page, would you think they're the same caliber or would you, cause like I have this preconceived idea that if somebody doesn't have a website, they sort of aren't investing the time or money or energy in their career to be, to look professional. I feel like a, a website makes somebody look more professional and Instagram to me, while it could be professional, so I'm not knocking anybody who does that, but I'm just saying to me, it doesn't imply that investment of time and energy towards their career because they're just using something that pre is pre-existing. True. Okay. So of course, one thing is that with a website, you can put your personality into it. That's a plus. I guess, if you like that, because you can create it and you can have fun with it and it doesn't have to be the same as everyone else. With Instagram, that's harder, but you can also, I mean, if I were an artist, I would use the tool that got my works of art out to the most amount of people, if that was what I wanted to do with it, right? And so if you have a website, you still need to make sure that that website is seen by people and that's the other hard part so you put huge amount of work on making the best websites but then the second part is like how the fuck do i tell people that this exists and where do i do it and how much does it cost and i find a lot of visual artworks on instagram and i can see why that's just as long as it tells the story and you manage to some artworks fits into that and some artworks don't and that's of course you have to think about that but if you manage to get the story out with Instagram, I wouldn't think about Instagram as less professional as a website, as a curator. I would look at the artwork and I would read if there's any information. And if I see that that has the content that I'm interested in, I wouldn't sort of think anything more about that. So to me, it's so much out there now. And I also really, really use, love the hashtags because I started, I spent some time figuring them out. But now if I'm digging into an artist that I don't know that much about, it might be an artist that's no longer alive. And I want to see how institutions have, for example, previously installed that artist. When I use the hashtags, I get like a million views where like lots, not the institutions, but mostly it's interesting to see how the audiences have taken the snapshots and use that hashtag and you get also the audience's view when they see something it might be something in a sculpture park outdoors i work a lot with public art so for me that's a where i have to like start to look for them so i love that with instagram to like hashtag artist name and then i see from all over the world how people have seen it how it has been installed what people think about it i think it's brilliant yeah, I need to work on that. All right. <laughs> so back to what you were talking about. Um, you talked about how when you start to do an exhibition, you try and find a story and then you sort of build out from there. How do you find a story? Because literally like your topic could be, well, anything in the whole world in history, time of existence, you know, 
human experience. It could be anything. How do you take all those options and whittle them down to, that's the one that I should do a project about? Well, I guess it's the same question as you can ask an artist, right? But why did you want to tell this story? And then that was sort of because that artists had that. I guess the answer is the same as everyone else in a sense. And it might be like if I'm working at an institution, it's maybe a task that I have to solve. It's a why. I remember you talked to Per Plato, another Norwegian artist, about the big why, but that was in a different context. But I think that the big the why is really important, I think, for a curator because that gives you if you answer that, you're forced to answer the context. And you need to know why you should do this. And the same, I guess, as an artist, you need to answer that as a curator. You can have this brilliant idea, you want to work with this and this artist and you want to tell this story, but if you can't answer the why, then maybe it's not a good idea because you need to have a good reason for why should this story be told right now? Was it previously told by no one? Okay, maybe that's a good reason. Um, Does it have anything to do with the political climate at the moment? Okay, maybe that's something, you know. So you really sort of need to have reasons, I think, for it to also become interesting. And so you need to latch on to the big context at the moment. So you need to answer the why. And I have, sometimes I work the opposite. So the why is maybe the reason why I wanted to tell the story, if you see my, what I'm trying to say. I do. I do. Yeah. Oh, why is my biggest uh, like question constantly? I had this friend in grad school, John Collis, and he sat down one day and he's like, I got to read an artist statement. I'm like, okay, go start, read it out loud to me. And he just started, I, I had my back to him. I wasn't even looking at him, wasn't even paying attention to what he was saying. I, anytime he would just stop talking, I would just turn and say, why? And, and we kept doing this for like, I mean, so I, I had no idea what he was saying. We kept doing this for like 45 minutes. I don't even know. Maybe it was an hour. And in the end, I, suddenly I just turned and I was like, why? And he's like, I've got it. I figured it out. Thanks a lot. And he just like ran off. <laughs> and I'm like, I had no idea what he said, but just continually pushing him, just saying, just no matter what he said, I kept saying, why? 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 And he figured it out for himself. And like, it sometimes it takes being pushed really hard to figure out why because like for my artwork i i'm more of a practice based so like i will do something because i i enjoy the process of making something and oftentimes it takes me i generally say three to five years to be able to have the hindsight to be able to look back on why i made something and so it's really hard for me sometimes to like show artwork that's new because i don't really know why i'm making it yet but then in hindsight, I can then look back and be like, oh, yeah, the reason why I made that was because of this, 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 this. Exactly. It's really important. But I guess it always starts with something of your own personal interests. It has to be. And I, for me, it's the same. If I can and I have the possibility to do that, the tutorial projects always become a little bit better if you're invested personally in something. So let's say to give you like an example that's maybe easier to understand when I did my MA, I worked at the Photographer's Gallery and it was supposed to celebrate its 40 years anniversary. And so we needed to do something that could celebrate this 40 years of history. And then since I am also a little bit of interest sometimes in science fiction and these type of things, I had also just recently read that the Golden Records project, this NASA project, and that's 
yeah, you're nodding. So Carl Sagan's NASA project um, also celebrated its 50 years anniversary the same year. On the Voyager, I believe, is what that was on. On the Voyager. So it's this physical archive that was sent out to space and it's still out there. And so I realized that I was reading about that and I realized that that was also 40 years ago. And so I saw this amazing opportunity to connect the dots. And so I used that as a project to look at the 40 years anniversary of the Photographer's Gallery and the NASA Golden Records at the same time, because they sent up 118 photographs, which was part of the archive. And so I digged into those 118 photographs to see what was sent out to outer space, and they were supposed to represent the whole Earth. So it's a super interesting archive project with lots of problematic issues <laughs> as well, but also super fascinating. And so I started to like recreate and did like a little remake, a contemporary remake of those 180 photographs. Like what would I invited 100 artists to answer that question? Like if you were to choose one photographic image that you made yourself, that would represent the earth. And that was the only thing you left behind before you died to communicate to who else is going to pick it up. What image would you choose? And so I asked that to 100 artists from all over the world, and then I collected it. Did all 100 come up with a good answer to that? Because I would imagine there's a percentage that would come up with really bad answers to that. It's a good mix. It's a really confusing mix. Yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of the point as well, that that's kind of the diversity you get as well. And the diversity in the original 118 the original project itself was also really, really, really weird. Oh, yeah. I've, I've watched documentaries of the story of the making of those discs and all the thought that went into the, the mathematics behind it, the science behind it, like all the different kinds of things. And yes, it certainly has some flaws in it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, but, you know, out for its time, it was incredibly progressive and very forward thinking. However, it's, pretty dated at this point <laughs> but yeah yes but it was super fascinating to pick it up again yeah and have a look so that was just an example of like a story and then starting from the why and taking it from there i guess one thing that i always wonder about when it comes to curators and so okay so like i guess let me i don't really know a lot about you i know you now for 50 minutes so the do you work at an institution and only curate there or do you do sort of freelance stuff so what's the amount of curating and style of curating you do i don't have time maybe if i didn't have the oslo archive and the norwegian association <laughs> and the oslo Art weekend and i would maybe have some spare time to do some freelance curating but unfortunately i don't so i very much enjoy doing that but i solely do it now for my job for the norwegian sculpture association exactly okay great i'm just trying I've, I've got tabs open i'm trying to make sure i'm talking about the right place you're doing great yeah thank you i try to look professional <laughs> so the the question i always wonder about when it comes to curating stuff is how much of sort of the pedantic stupid shit that we all want to think is not important is important. So what I mean by that is 
footfall? Like, are you sitting there going like, okay, I want to curate this exhibition, but we need to be sure to get a big name in order to get more people through the door, or we need to have a diversity of genders or diversity of ethnicities or regions or whatever, in order to attract the most people. Like, do you have grants that you have to answer to as far as like the range of people, you know, by gender, by age, by, by nationalities, kinds of things like that you have to answer to, or is it pretty much just like, we can do whatever project we want? <laughs> ah, that's a good question. I think that you, or at least I can only answer for, since I haven't worked for 20, 30 years as a curator, I'm sure I have a lot to learn. And that being said, I, my experience until now has sort of taught me that one has to look around, look at the local area around you, like the context is again quite important. And so you have to see what is around you and connected to that. It's again, this little bit about the why, you know, so it's sort of connected to that again. So yes, I guess you could do, of course, everything you want to do, big names, small names, but you do have to sort of look at the situation and where you're at. And where I work at the moment, it's not in the city center. It's this old villa from the 18th century. That's not really a gallery. It's not a white cube. It's actual villa. And we turned certain spaces of that into sort of gallery spaces, but they're not really white cubes. And we have demography. Do you say that in English? De de demographics. Demographics, exactly. Around us is not i mean people it's a destination in a sense but it's kind of far off the city center and it has a huge green sculpture park around it that we can fill with outdoor sculptures as well if we want to but people use it as their private garden with barbecues and parties and baby showers and training and they use our tables and our trees to work out and so you have to sort of adapt to where you're at and your local area, I think. And we have to, especially us with also working in public space, we have three kindergartens at least coming every day that place because they don't have any green area in their kindergarten. So they use us and our park as their space to play. And so that means that if I place something out there without thinking about the kindergartens, it, it will be, it's lost within one day. And so all the artists as well, when they exhibit at our place, they need to take this in and work with that. They can't just make anything and put it out in the park and then go like, voila. So you have to take all of this in. And so we program a lot according to that and also according to weather in a sense, because we're where we're at. And so the park in the wintertime is a different park than when it's summertime. So we need to think about light. It gets really really easy like early dark it's all of these other things that you don't think about that you need to think about when you program and i don't think the artists think about that as much that we sort of tell them and then of course some of the things you mentioned we do think about like diversity and we think about gender and we think about age a lot it has a long history where i work it was started just after the second world war the sculpture society and to make all of these you know after the second world war everyone needed to put up monuments after everyone that died <laughs> and so they created this society because you could call somewhere to ask for this and we have this history and so we try a lot to combine the older generation with the super young generation and put them together 
since we have different spaces and rooms. So that's what I love to do. And I think that is one of the things that works the most because you make a bridge between two generations and also two histories and different types of thinking. So that's a little bit of a hack that I like to use as a tool. All right. I've got one other question that I, I've been wondering about through the number of different people I've spoken to in the Scandinavian regions, which is that there is associations and there are societies. What's the difference? <laughs> I, I don't know. And I don't know why they, I mean, to be honest, I think most of the people, when they try to translate on the go where I work, they would use association. And that makes most sense. But for some reason, at some point, they decided to call it society. And to be honest, I'm not really sure what happened there. Okay, so there's no like intentional, like our society does this for the world and the associations do this other thing. Like there's no differentiation. At least that's uh, not where my knowledge lies, I'm afraid. There might be a really wise answer to this, but that's for another podcast, perhaps. Or just another person. Somebody else just might actually have that knowledge. It's perfectly fine. You don't have to know everything. <laughs> that is literally the I definition of, well, that's the definition of this podcast. Like you're wise about things you're wise about and you're foolish about things you're, you're not wise about. Like totally fine. I love that. That's the goal here is the, the goal is to try and like soak in everybody's wisdom <laughs> so that we all become a little wiser and, and some of our little foolish holes in our careers and our minds sort of get filled in a little bit. Like that's the idea. It's a good idea. It's working for me. I have gained exponentially more information, knowledge and uh, interest in th things that like I, I did not even know existed prior to this podcast. So yeah, it's been fun. All right. Last little questions. You've listened to the podcast. You know these questions. I'm sure you're prepared for these ish. <laughs> so first one is, of course, uh, some, some three creative people that you're looking at. Thank you for that question. I was trying to be prepared. I want to answer something that you might not agree is a contemporary artist, but it's still very inspirational for me. So I'm going to answer a guy called Sandor Katz, which has written some books, is about fermentation. So that's an odd one out, but for me, it's the best book I've read in 2020, The Art of Fermentation. I was going to say, when you say fermentation, you mean like wine and beer fermentation? And food and soya sauce and yogurt and coffee. Kimchi. And kimchi. And yes. So he's written this amazing book called The Art of Fermentation. And to me, it's actually quite inspirational when it comes to the art. And as a photographer, I think you should read it because fermentation is a little bit like being in the dark room, actually quite a lot like being in the dark room. So it's my substitute. And I think I use it instead of photography in the same way. So I do something and you have to wait and you have to be super patient and it might not be what you thought it would be, and you might have to start over again, but it gives you this enormous pleasure and a different beat in your life because you have to slow down. And it's also really activistic in the sense that it's a life hack. So you can make all of these things you thought you had to buy, but you can just make them yourself. And for me, this whole book 
is really inspirational when it comes to art. So probably at some point I'm going to make a group exhibition which is about fermentation. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point. Okay, I'm on for it. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to see that group exhibition is going to be famous and travel all over the world. It's going to be a group exhibition about fermentation. Well, fermentation is one of those things that it actually translates cross-culture. There's fermentation in almost every society. So I could imagine a nice traveling exhibition that could cover all kinds of different things. So yeah, why not? <laughs> exactly. And then I have to say that I have to mention some of my beginners that sort of got me into this world. So a little credit to the photographers like Saliman and Yeo Engström, because she was the one that sort of is one of the reasons why I'm here today. So that's a little bit of a hooray to her, I guess. Yeah, I don't know any photographer of a certain age that doesn't appreciate Sally Mann for sure. No, I think everything that is a bit uncanny is always something that I've enjoyed in art and in literature and theater and cinema and absolutely everything. All right. And the last question is some advice for the next generation. Okay, I think we already covered that with do not move away, stay. That's a good one. So we got that one already, like a do not thingy. And I think that I sort of, just to sum it up, I think that I would just always ask myself, whatever you are and what you're doing, if you're a curator or artist or a technician or a director, I think that we just just sum it up with asking yourself why a million times. I do it every day. Yeah. <laughs> Marvelous. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. I hope you were enjoying and learning from the stories, experiences, and advice of our guests as much as I am. If you like the podcast, we would appreciate a five-star rating and a nice comment would be greatly appreciated. Please tell your friends to listen and subscribe too. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. Audio editing is done by Jakub Cherne, and I am your host, Matthew Doles. For more information about the podcast and our guests, please visit our website, wisefoolpod.com. The Wise Fool is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com. <laughs>